0: The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. We uh, also are delighted to have our speaker, Jesse Johnson, from Uh, Emmanuel Bible Church, Springfield, Virginia. uh, We rejoice that you could come and be with us today. And God bless you as you speak to us. Well, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is a joy for me to be with you on this Lord's Day to worship our crucified and resurrected Savior. Thank you for having me. Uh, To your pastors and elders, uh, Pastor George Lawson has preached in my pulpit down in uh, Springfield, Virginia, several times, and uh, I'm only too glad to be up here today. And I saw on the slide that he'll be he'll be back in a few weeks as well. Uh, so I'm just so thankful for him and his friendship. We've been friends for 15 years, and uh, I was up here one more time, but not in this building. Last time I, I was preaching here, we were in the uh, that triangle building. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, Hallelujah for this building instead. <laughs> you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter seven. Mark chapter seven. Let me pray to dedicate our time to the Lord, and then we'll begin. God, it is as we just heard sung for us, uh, our our duty to praise you. We praise you in the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray. And in the word that we hear now, we pray that you would seal your word into our hearts, that You would use it to strengthen us. We know that's a supernatural thing that happens, that your Holy Spirit impresses the word onto our heart. Our natural minds wouldn't be able to understand it, but he seals these words into our heart, And through that, it convicts us of sin and directs us to righteousness and grows us in our own faith. And so we pray that your spirit would do that. Just through the reading of your word in a moment and then through the listening. Uh, now, we submit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 7, the very end of the chapter, beginning in verse 31, Mark seven thirty-one. then he, being Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon and the sea to Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to the heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphratha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously They proclaimed it. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Until the advent of modern sign language, there was probably nobody in the world more to be pitied than a deaf mute. These kind of people have a fully functioning vocal cords and tongue. They have no real speech impediment, but because of their deafness, they're unable to learn language. Now, when a child like this is born, this is in a world that doesn't have hearing tests. You know, there's no way to identify that the child is deaf. Babies, as uh, many of you are aware, are less than responsive to your voice anyway. (laughs) On a good day, they're not obedient. So as this baby grows up, it's likely the parents might suspect something, but nobody knows for sure. In fact, it wouldn't be until the child is around other kids his age that the other kids start speaking. And it becomes evident that something's wrong. A child like this can make sounds, of course. They can, you know, ba ba ba, na na na. They can make gibberish, and so the parents would not detect that something is wrong with his vocal cords or his speech ability until others are speaking more with more complexity. This child, of course, he alone is aware that he can't hear anything. He doesn't know what that means even. He'd have no grid that something with him is different than everybody else. He would become adept at reading facial expressions. He can tell how other people would respond to him. And of course, the first facial expression he would probably pick up on is that of disappointment. He would detect that his parents were disappointed with him, that his friends are disappointed with him, that basically people in general have a sort of disdain for him. He's not able to obey because he's not able to hear, so he's not able to speak. You now, In most of the world, these kids were abandoned. They were left for dead. Even in the modern world, in many cities of the world, a child like this would be left to be a beggar on the streets. In the Jewish world, there was no... Uh, Way to teach them to read. The Jews, by and large, didn't teach anybody to read that couldn't communicate vocally. They viewed the words of uh, writing as expressing divine words, and a child like this could be guilty of blasphemy if he wrote something improperly. But the Romans didn't teach these kids to read either. As people who were deaf mutes grew up in the Roman world, they'd be locked in asylums. In fact, this Person is not in asylum is probably a testimony that he does have friends and family in some sense that does love him and care for him, but this would be exceptionally unusual. This is the person we meet at the end of Mark chapter 7. Again, a person who is incredibly to be pitied. There's a, a phrase in the medical community for this, it's locked-in syndrome. And what that means is when the mind is fully developed but unable to articulate, the world around this kind of person thinks that the person is mentally stunted, mentally deficient, and would think that he belongs in an asylum. But his mind works perfectly. He just can't hear. Such is the case with this person that Jesus meets out in the Decapolis. This is a part of Mark's gospel where Jesus is going on an international tour. He's left Israel. He left Israel to the north to go up to Tyre and then back down through Sidon to get over to the Decapolis. This is a very circuitous route. Jesus spends six months on this journey. When you take the Synoptic Gospels together, he's left Israel for six months. He announced that he was leaving Israel. By the way, before he did so, he said they weren't believing in his preaching. They weren't, uh, uh, you know, listening to his the signs that they did. They didn't believe in them. They just wanted bread from him. In John chapter six, he declares that. And so he's he's out. He leaves. He goes up to to let modern day Lebanon. Circles back through. Syria and Jordan, only to enter the Decapolis here. It's a very circuitous route to get to the Decapolis. It would be like me saying, I'm gonna go get dinner afterwards in Baltimore, but to get there, I'm gonna drive through Philadelphia. It's not how you would go, probably. Uh, There's probably better ways, like shorter ways, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's getting to the Decapolis by going up through Lebanon, circling around, back through the wilderness with his destination of the Decapolis. Decapolis is 10 cities made by the Emperor Pompey to be a testimony of Greek culture to the Arab world. They're, they're built on the closest one to Israel would be on the, the back side of the Sea of Galilee. but there's, again, 10 cities, is the, what the Greek word means, Decapolis and they're sprinkled around all, all the way off into the, you know Saudi Arabia area. That's where Jesus is going. These are Greek speakers. There's not a lot of Jews there, if any, at all. And Jesus is taking his healing ministry there. You saw that in, earlier in Mark chapter seven where the, the woman, the Gentile woman asks for a miracle for her daughter and Jesus tells her no. And she says, you know, the dogs eat the scraps from the floor. Can't, you know, me as a Gentile have something? The Jews are rejecting your message. Can I take it? And Jesus esteems her faith and heals her child. Well, now you find this man this deaf mute who was brought, verse 32, says Jesus, well, he's in the Decapolis. They brought him the man who was deaf and he had a speech impediment. It's an odd word for speech impediment there. The ESV translates it that way. It's a word for chained. It means his tongue is chained to the back of his mouth. It's a word that's normally used in the, in the scriptures for the act of being chained, imprisoned, for example. Paul says the word of God is not in chains. That's this word. This man's tongue is tied to the back of his mouth. Again, there's nothing wrong with his The mechanisms of his tongue and his mouth, it's purely that he can't hear. They bring him to Jesus, and they launch him at Jesus' feet. Now, Jesus has been healing people for this entire six months. He's been healing people for two years. When you think of the healing ministry of Jesus, he did not heal people like, of course, the frauds on TV heal people today. He didn't heal people in mass. You know, he didn't go to the hospital and say, I heal everybody in this building. Jesus healed people one at a time. Often with a sign of physical touching, he would often lay his hand on the sick person or communicate to him on the Sabbath when it would have been, you know, the Jews would have said it would have been a sin for him to work, to, you know, lift a finger. He just healed with a look at the person. But it was individual, one-on-one. He could heal at a distance, that one person whom he prayed for at a distance, such as with the centurion servant. But all of the people Jesus heals, it's individual encounters. Even when it's hundreds or even thousands of them, he's healing them one at a time. And so people are bringing the sick to Jesus. They're bringing those who need healing to Jesus. You saw earlier in Mark's gospel where they cut a hole in the roof to lower the paralytic down to him because they needed the guy to get to Jesus. That's this scenario here. They bring him. He's been healing perhaps thousands of people through the Gentile world. One passage says that in this six-month journey, Jesus drove illness out of Palestine, that larger area outside of Israel. He rid it of illness and sickness by going around and everybody was bringing the sick and the lame and the, the, the deaf to him and he was healing them all. This person is brought to him and the ESV renders it brought here, but it's really the word for, for throne. You know, his friends bring him to Jesus and kind of hurl him at the feet of Christ. So as Jesus is walking around, here comes a group of people with a, a deaf mute and they push him up in front of Jesus and kind of throw him at the feet of Jesus so there he is in front of everybody. They begin begging Jesus to lay his hand on him. This man has been a spectacle his whole life. He's been on public display to be ridiculed his entire life. He probably largely knows disappointment if not Uniquely or only knows disappointment. And now he finds himself at the feet of the Savior. This is a long way from Israel. Jesus takes this man, verse 33 says, aside, away from the crowd, privately. I don't know how he accomplished that. I don't know if he had a tent there or a privacy screen. (laughs) There's no indication of what Transpired here, except the text says he took him away privately. And just pause for a second and marvel Jesus is not making this man into a public spectacle. He's not doing this for the crowd. He's looking at this person individually, one to one, eye to eye, privately. He takes him aside. He puts his fingers, it says in verse 33, into his ears. So you are in close proximity right here. I mean, how far are your arms? A couple feet? So Jesus is nose to nose with this guy. Fingers in his ears. This is the first indication to this man that Jesus understands what he's going through. This is probably the first person who has ever encountered this individual who knows that it's a problem with the ears. This guy has fully formed thoughts without vocabulary, fully formed images, logic and reasoning, as much as you can without connecting things to proper nouns. His mind is functioning. But nobody knows he can't hear until Jesus touches his ears. That's the problem. Reminds me of Exodus chapter 4 when God calls Moses to be a minister, a speaker, and Moses says, I can't talk, so no. Then Yahweh tells Moses, who do you think made your mouth? I know what's going on in your mind. I know what's going on in your mouth. I made you. That's this kind of encounter here. You're seeing, the, in this sense, the deity of Christ on full display. He's looking at this person, and by virtue of grabbing his ears, he is communicating to him, I know you. I formed you. Now, sin, of course, mars the world. There is sickness in the world. There is mental incapacity in the world. There is illness and untimely death in the world because of the reign of sin. Of course, that's true. But God is still sovereign over that. He's sovereign in a way that doesn't imply he's morally responsible for sin in the world. He's sovereign in a way that he can look at Moses with a speech impediment and declare, I made you. It doesn't make God morally responsible for sin, but it definitely makes him sovereign over all of the ways that we are. And so it is with this deaf mute. Jesus is expressing his sovereignty over his ears, his sovereignty over and... The logical connection here is sovereignty over his thoughts. God knows what this person is thinking. He has access to his mind. He has access to his heart. This guy can't communicate, but Jesus reads his thoughts like he would read the mail. He moves from his ears and spits and then touches his tongue. The Greek is, I think, implying that he spits onto his tongue. That's the way that the word that's translated and here in English, it can be a connecting word. He spits in order to touch his tongue. I don't know if he spits in his hands and touches his tongue or directly on the tongue. I think it's how I read it. That's weird. (laughs) Like It's not not ungodly to read that and go, okay. (laughs) If you're a doctor, don't do this, you'll... Go to jail probably. (laughs) The Romans had all kinds of weird understandings about the way spit worked from emperors who would spit on their subjects and even soldiers that would demonstrate a change in command by spitting one to the other. Not the way our military works. (laughs) There's all kinds of fake faith healers that would make these potions with their spit and mixed rooster blood with it and sell it to you. Jesus isn't doing any of that. I think the spit here is demonstrating, first of all, his closeness, his understanding of everything going on in this this person. Secondly, it's demonstrating the power to heal is coming from Jesus. It's out of him. What heals this man, will we heal this man's mouth, is what is from Jesus' mouth. In other words, it's a way of demonstrating that he alone has the power to heal. He touches the man's tongue. But then we move beyond the deity of Christ here, who, who made this person can heal the person, into the humanity of Christ in verse 34. He looks up to heaven. Jesus is demonstrating, he's communicating by virtue of touching the ears and then spitting on the tongue, then the look to heaven. The spitting on the tongue is demonstrating the power to heal comes from me. The look to heaven is demonstrating, without words here, remember there's no vocabulary, there's no words exchanged here. The guy doesn't have vocabulary. Jesus is communicating to him, I can heal you. But the power to heal you comes from above me. So that's the way healing works. It's from the father to the son, from the son to the person. What this establishes is the son's authority. And it establishes the son's authority is from the father. Now, Jesus has taught this repeatedly through his ministry. He says, I can only do what the father sent me to do. And he says, he joins his working to the father's working. He says, if you see me working, you've seen the father working. I and the father are one. We're doing the same thing. And here he's communicating that that work is coming from me, but it doesn't originate with me. It's coming from me, like the spit demonstrates, but it originates with my Father who is in heaven. John spells this theology out in such precise, detailed ways in the Gospel of John. What I love about this is Jesus is using the theology that's given to us in words in John. Jesus is using sign language, really, to communicate it. How do you know Jesus was sent from the Father? How would you communicate that without words? Jesus is doing it right here. He looks up to heaven. You see the weight of sin on Jesus as well. He sighs. Reminds you of Romans 8, where creation groans under the weight of sin. The earth does not willingly support all of our sinful activity with its structure, the earth groans. The sun doesn't willingly give its light to lighter sinful paths, but it groans in doing so. Here Jesus is walking, God in human flesh, truly God, truly man, the deity of Christ on display, the humanity of Christ on display in one person. Jesus, the true God man, is walking on earth and in his person, he is grieved, weighed down, exasperated, whatever word you wanna use here. He is burdened by sin. He sees the affliction of sin in the world. Ah, it's not to imply that this man sinned, and that's why he's a, a deaf or even that his parents sinned. That'll be a question that'll be asked in John's gospel. He's just communicating that the existence of sin in the world is hard. That's what a sigh communicates. If you ask someone, how are you doing today? And they sigh. <sighs> Great. You don't believe them. Jesus is communicating here that sin weighs this world down. It ought not be this way. Jesus is the true and better Adam, has dominion over this world, but he's walking in a world that is weighed down by sin. Now, what's he going to do? I mean, he heals people. He's... Literally laying his life down for sin. He's going to be crucified to pay the penalty for sin. There's nothing more he can do. But even so, it weighs him down. Grieves him. He has sympathy for this man. And not just this man, but for all who are weighed down by sin. And he sighs. He speaks to him. Epaphrathah. Now, that's a strange thing to say. It means be opened. He's talking to the ears. Jesus understands what the problem is. It'll go ears to tongue, right? When he can hear, he can learn and speak. But he says it in Aramaic, which is not the language that the Greeks speak. That's why it's not even the language that Mark wrote in. Mark wrote in Greek, so it's translated right here. It's translated, just brought across from Aramaic. Mark translates when he writes his gospel. It means be opened, because perhaps Mark's readers couldn't read Aramaic. Not all of them could. It's brought into English, or just be opened. But they keep the word in there, paphitha. It just means be opened. This guy doesn't speak Aramaic. In mitigation, he also doesn't speak Greek, right? He doesn't speak anything. So I guess he could have spoken to him in Swahili. It would have been just as effective, but the first word the guy hears is going to be Aramaic, the language of the Jews, be opened. And at that speaking, his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And notice this. He spoke plainly. Well, that's crazy. He spoke plainly. Like he could hear one. He's only heard one word. And it's not even his language. And he can speak plainly. You would imagine that if somebody was a deaf mutant could suddenly hear. And they have hearing aids that do this now. I mean, you can take somebody who hasn't been able to hear their their whole life and maybe they've learned sign language of some kind and they can even read and write. They get hearing aids. It still takes them like a year before they can communicate in sentences that make sense to everybody. They've got to learn how to speak. They go through speech therapy and You know, they put vowel sounds together and understand the different ways you make, you know, the labials with your lips and the different sounds. And there's a whole phonetic structure behind this speech therapy that takes a really long time to get somebody to communicate like this. And here at this moment, this guy has his hearing and his tongue is loosed and he communicates perfectly and plainly immediately. Probably in two languages. The guy becomes... A wordsmith, and Jesus charged them. Now he's back with his friends to tell no one. I mean, that's as a, this is one of those one of those these miracles where every verse gets weirder than the one before. You know, you thought when he touched the ears, it's not getting any weirder, and then he spits in the tongue. Okay, I'm out. <laughs> Speaks in the wrong language, and then you know now the guys waxing eloquently, you're like, I've seen it all. And then Jesus says, don't tell anyone. It becomes a riddle. You know, who has the desire to speak but not the ability and then has the ability to speak but is forbidden. (laughs) This guy. The one thing he hasn't been able to do his whole life. Jesus gives him the ability to do it and then says, don't. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And in the Greek, it's parallel here, like the, the sterner, the more stern Jesus was with them, the more sternly they spoke. The more exasperated Jesus got, the more exasperated they got in their speech. It was like they went up together. And perhaps you've seen like a parent arguing with the child at, you know, Walmart. parent says, quiet. And the child says, you quiet. No, I mean it. No, you mean it. And the ratcheted. So so this what's happening here. Jesus says, stop. And he's like, no, no, stop. No, no. Now, I know all sin is against God and sin is never excusable. In this instance, though, I have a little sympathy for the guy. (laughs) Why does Jesus tell him not to tell anybody? And that goes back, I think, to It's all over Mark. Repeatedly in Mark's gospel, Jesus tells, will do incredible things and say, don't tell anyone. I mean, the most outrageous of these is is earlier in Mark's gospel where Jesus goes to a funeral, interrupts a funeral, raises the person who died from the dead, and then tells the family, don't tell anyone. Well, they're in the bedroom with the mourners happening outside, and Jesus walks out. I mean, the child's going to come out of the room eventually. But Jesus says, don't tell anyone. And the answer, I think, is pretty straightforward. The message of Christ is not that he's a healer. The message of Christ is that he's a redeemer. And so repeatedly in Mark's gospel, Jesus will heal someone and say, don't tell anybody, because that's not why he came. I mean, the one person who is allowed to speak is the demoniac, and Jesus says, you can't come with me to tell anybody, but you can go home and tell your family what the Lord did for you. I mean, that's the exception. Everybody else is like, shh. Cast demons out, don't tell anyone. Makes the the deaf hear. don't tell anyone. Brings the dead person back to life, don't tell anyone. It repeats that way through all of the gospel until the end of Mark's gospel when Jesus dies on the cross, bearing the penalty for sin, resurrects from the grave on the third day. And you understand this exchange here. If Jesus pays for your sin on the cross, he led a, a sinless life, and if he suffers and dies It's not for his sin. He's not weighed down by his own sin. It's not his sin he dies for. He dies for our sin. So as God transfers our punishment onto him, the the distance that sin creates between us and God is given to Jesus. There is this distance then, and he experiences the wrath of God and the suffering of God for sin. He undergoes the punishment for sin. He then rises from the grave on the third day, and now your sins can be forgiven. If you place your faith in that death and in that resurrection, you can have your sins taken away. So that's the message. The message is not that this deaf, mute, Jesus made him hear. The message is not that that person who is dead resurrected. That's not the message that we bring to the world. The message we bring to the world is that your sins can be forgiven by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the message. So he says, don't tell anybody. But these guys are, you know... They're amped up here. And so they keep just telling everybody. They were astonished. The word astonished beyond all know measure, it's the, the word for filling water up. You have a water jug and you, sometimes it rocks in to filter the water. And so you pour the water in and the water cycles through all the rocks and then it overflows the top. There's a specific Greek word for that. That's this word. They were overflowing, filled up in all the crevices of their body and overflowing out of the top of their head with astonishment. They couldn't believe this. All they can say, they're less eloquent than the deaf-mute, all they can say is, he's done all things well. That's the takeaway. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's a pretty interesting question. Why does Jesus heal people like this if it's not the message? And the answer is because all of his miracles, like all of his parables, point to salvation. So you're not following Christ. The words of the Bible don't make sense to you. So you, you see a story even like this, perhaps. And you think, I don't buy it. It doesn't make sense. You don't see any spiritual truth behind it. That's the way the Bible sounds to people who are not following the Lord. It sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. You know what I'm talking about? The, yeah, yeah. That's spiritual deafness. You read the Word, you don't see anything there. It's spiritual blindness. You look at the glory of God that the heavens proclaim day after day, night after night pours forth knowledge and you think I I don't hear that. You're spiritually dead. You're supposed to be alive, but you're dead. So the miracles of Christ hit in all those areas, don't they? It opens your eyes, it opens your ears, it gives you life. You place your faith in Christ, and you see truth in the word. You place your faith in Christ and you, you can even taste the truth. Psalm 19 says it tastes like honey. Before it tasted like poison and vinegar. And now because of your faith in Christ, you, you eat the word of God. And you're like, whoa, that is delicious. You live. You can't, your feet don't serve the Lord but apart from faith in Christ. But once you place your faith in Christ, suddenly you went from being spiritually lame to spiritually walking. And you can follow the Lord. your hands don't serve the Lord apart from faith in Christ, but with faith in Christ, your hands are suddenly productive for the Lord. These are all of the miracles that Jesus does. He makes you into someone through faith that can see his, his truth, proclaim his truth, hear his truth, love his truth, follow his truth, do things in keeping with obedience that the scripture commands. You can do all those things through faith in Christ. That's the miracles of Christ are pointing you that way. And to show that he has the authority to forgive sins, he might tell you, take up your mountain walk, you know? He might do a miracle that points back to the truth of the gospel, such as this. But those miracles, they underline the message. They circle it, they star it, they validate it. But they're not the message. The message truly is He's done all things well. That's the Gentile takeaway. This guy has done all things well. Yesterday I was at a funeral for my aunt in Denver, Colorado. She had something called uh, progressive aphasia, which is kind of the erasure of... The synapses in the mind that connect vocabulary. So the way our minds work is you have a picture of something and it connects to the noun. And so you're able to make logical connections, you know, Bible, microphone, you know, you can do that. A person with aphasia loses the ability to do that. So they they no longer connect things to what they, they are. And by the end of her life, she could say three sentences. That's the car. That's the light. And dear heavenly father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. Those are the three sentences she had in her entire vocabulary. She didn't know how to eat anymore, but she knew what light, car, and the trinity were. That was it. <laughs> As she started to get worse in her disease, I flew out to see her a few years ago. This was, I think, one of her last car rides was picking me up at the airport before she was still able to drive. That didn't last much longer. And I shared her with her this story and told her that even if your brain continues to break down, you know the Lord knows your thoughts. You might not be able to pray. You might not be able to say words to the Lord, but he knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your mind. For some of you, that's great news. But apart from faith in Christ... It's terrible news. Because yeah. the Lord knows what's in your heart Amen. and knows what's in your mind. Amen. Your only hope, if that's you, is to turn to the Lord Jesus and do what these friends did with the deaf mute throw yourself at the feet of Christ and ask for his forgiveness for your sins. Yeah. God, we're thankful for your word, which causes the blind to see, the deaf to hear. Pray for this congregation. Pray that you would fill us with a desire to proclaim the beauty of the Lord to the, to the world. We, in many ways, resemble this man. We, too, are spiritually blind and spiritually mute. But you've opened up our eyes, you've opened up our ears, you've unchained our tongue. So now, Lord, send us into the world. And you have not. Forbidden us from speaking. You've done the opposite. You've told us, go into all the world and make disciples. You've told us, preach the gospel in season and out of season. You've told us to be ambassadors to you, to beg people to come to faith. Now that you've given us something to say, Lord, and our tongues are unloosed, use us this week to proclaim your good news to, to the world. How will they know? How will they know about Christ unless one of us tells them? We pray that we would be faithful to do that this week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.